we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afrofutures. This is Yusuf speaking, and I am here with the host of the Malcolm Effect. Mamadou is not just that the host of the Malcolm Effect. He is just a brilliant, brilliant commentator. He hails from London, England, with descent from Gambia, and is currently living in Cairo, Egypt, where he's studying Islam and Arabic. Mamadou is just... I mean, if you haven't seen him on CNN, if you haven't uh, followed him on Twitter, <laughs> um, he really is bringing some some serious, serious perspectives to the issues that affect black people. And, and it, it just was appropriate to have you on Afrofuture. So thank you, Mamadou, for really for, for showing up and for being here. It's an absolute honor and privilege to be in dialogue with you. Much love to you always. Thank you. Mamadou, we folks probably know that we connected just generally off yes. of the kind of collective uh, work that interests both of us. But you had me on your on your show, and I'm happy that you're obliging to be on, on, on mine. You want to p- tell people a little bit about the Malcolm Effect? I mean, I think it's important for us to, you know, as, as we were told, to make the personal political. And we're going we're gonna to delve more deeply into that. Can you talk about the Malcolm Effect? Like, what is it? What, what are you talking about? What are you aspiring sure. to do? Yeah, sure. I mean, the kind of impetus behind the Malcolm effect initially was um, focusing or looking out at the podcasting scene in the UK. There are several podcasting and, and, you know, my guilty pleasure is, you know, the kind of gossip blogs. And sometimes, you know, I I haven't freed myself from the spiritual bondage of those kind of uh, podcasts yet. Mm. But the issue, I mean, what I found was there were some podcasts to deal with, like maybe current affairs or something to do with specific, like let's say one in finance or let's say one in economics. But there wasn't one that like commented on, let's say all things, all things related to race in a way that I felt was really accessible. Um, and I wanted to make my podcast super accessible to people. But also as well, I don't want to, I don't say my podcast is without an agenda. I absolutely do have an agenda. I want people, I want to provide a political education to people. And I want people to adopt a revolutionary politic <laughs> for the podcast. I share that vision with you. And I think that's yeah. that's precisely why I wanted to have you here. Because as we as we think about the issues that affect black people in the US and the diaspora, whether on the continent or across Europe, in Latin America and beyond, you know, there's this kind of collective uh, both history that that we share, but also collective uh, struggle, and I think it's important for us to begin to to really unpack for people just how pervasive white supremacist ideology is, both in the European context but beyond, and and how global of an enterprise it is. And in trying to unpack that, it's it's important to contrast like what the Black radical movement has both aspired to do in the U.S. and and really as a Black internationalist movement. Yes. How it's how it's 
recognize synergies with other liberation struggles. I mean, I, I can I can talk about my perspective from the U.S., but I'm, I'm eager to hear as a black British person, what's that experience like being black of Gambian descent in the U.K. and being Muslim, right? Because that's, there's, there's multiple identities there. Exactly. I was trying to like deal with this the other day and think about the American experience, the black American experience um, vis-a-vis the black British, British experience. And only thing I think about, when, when you think of the process of racialization, racialization is the process of when you encounter the other and then you give the person you're encountering, uh, you know, a race, designated, designated race to do with hierarchy. But what I was thinking about, I think when we look at the Black American experience, Black people in America, I find, are living under a settler colony. colony. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Black British experience is we are living in the colony itself, mm-hmm. um, you know, Britain being the empire, we are living in that. And I think it does offer a bit of a different perspective when you're in the colony. Let's say, for example, if you look at the, the kind of manifestation of the police and where it, where it comes from, we find that before police as we know it today was slave patrols, whereas in the UK, police was set up to protect property, property of rich white people. So I kind of feel that the racialization is a bit different. But however, if we look more, more, more recent times, we find that there has always been a connection with America and the, the UK in terms of radical, uh, radicalism. For example, if you look at when Claudia Jones was uh, deported from the States for being a communist, where did she go to? She goes to the UK mm. and then she continues. She, she lays the groundwork, which we know is Notting Hill Carnival, which is a celebration of black uh, culture black Caribbean culture in the UK after coming out of the race riots. Um, we know that there was a, we know Malcolm X goes to Birmingham 10 days before he's assassinated. He's in Birmingham, UK, talking to the, talking to the people there. He meets with the Muslims there and, and black people in general. Around the same time, we find that the British Black Panthers is established around the same time Malcolm X is assassinated. We find that Stokely Carmichael, Stokely Carmichael goes to the UK and gives, you know, so many interesting speeches and so many, uh, gets pumps the people up. So we find there's always been this connection with what it is to be black in America and also in the UK, but also beyond as well. Yeah, and, and I, I think this um, this collective sense could even go as far back as Marcus Garvey, right? With this notion yes. that you know black people, including black people from the Caribbean, because Garvey is uh, black of Caribbean descent, immigrated yep. to the United States, and was like, we need to get back to Africa, right? It's like yes. that whole Black to Africa movement, which in some respects is resurging now, right? Like it's, yes. it, there is this like, you know, the year of the great return a few years ago, right? Afrochella, like these both popular yep. culture things, but also like legitimate movements of people saying, you can't be black in the US or you can't be black in the UK. These societies aren't designed for us, we gotta go. And, yep. and in fact, the way that the U.S. is this synergy between its colonial history and even its empire, right, is the policing in the U.S. are both of those, right? It, it emerges from slave patrols and it certainly existed and exists to maintain this kind of order structure of black people at the lowest part of the racial caste. Mm-hmm. But it also borrows in northern cities from the U.K. model, right, of, of protecting property, right, this broken yep. windows theory. So, like, the marriage of these two are what modern policing in the U.S. is. And, and it's, yep. it has insidious and really deeply troubling impacts, but, it, but it's also an enterprise that is global. And at, at the core of what the black radical movement and thinking has, has interrogated is militarism itself, right? And this militarized 
And in fact, police departments continuously refer to themselves as paramilitary forces, right? This, mm-hmm. this sense that they are uh, really engaging communities, as I probably say a million times, the language, the technology, the mentality yep. of war, right? They organize themselves in that way. And so I think if you want to just try to detail for folks, like what is this, <clears throat> this relationship between this militaristic uh, approach and how it's leveraged as a mechanism for, for control? I think if we look at the inset, I think when those who are involved in analysis or trying to provide a political education, I think it's imperative that we um, root our analysis in history. So when you look at the inception of the United States of America, it comes out of a settler colony, as is Israel today. And you find that te- the technologies are exactly the same. The way they speak about um, the people, so the way that policing or over-policing of black and brown and people of color in the United States is the same technologies and same mechanisms that are used in Israel today. So you find that when, for example, in Ferguson, you found that in Ferguson, mm-hmm. when the tear gas was being used on protesters, it was Palestinians who came and said that we recognize the um, company in which th- those tear gas is manufactured in. So this is what you do to kind of avert the kind of pain on your eyes. So I find that just, just, just even contemporarily, we see the link so in our faces today. And I find that, but then again, this, this is just a long tradition of what black radical internationalism has always done. It's always sought to root uh, the suffering of black and brown people, particularly black people in America with people around the world. Because when you're on the other hand of oppression, when you're, on the, when you're facing oppression, you can you easily recognize in other places. So I've seen, I mean, we can talk about the Bandung Conference with, you know, Malcolm X spoke about, we can talk about almost, you seldom find a black radical leader from the past who did not condemn what was taking place in Israel and who didn't link, who P. Newton met with Yasser Arafat, for example. Mm-hmm. We find time and time again that our black radical leaders always had a connection with what's happening with Palestine. And it wasn't a Muslim issue. It wasn't a black issue. It wasn't a, an issue to do with any ethnic identity. But it was an issue of to say, you know what, we recognize what is happening to us in our home country, in our, where, we, where we call home. We recognize it's happening all over the world to other people. I mean, you, by the way, stole half of what I was going to say, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you saved me from having to say it. But, but I want to drill down on this a little bit because I think this is yep. why I wanted to raise the issue of militarism is because, and you really did directly go to Ferguson, and I think it's important. So let's, let's, let's just interrogate that space for a moment. Yeah. It's popularly discussed about Ferguson that there were riots, right? Like that's how, that's how the media, that's the, that's the meta-narrative, that's the broader discourse. What isn't really discussed is the decades of finding and feeding communities, stopping and searching black and brown people in ways that have impoverished black communities and that they have been able to be really, quite frankly, uh, abused in, in the state from, by the state, right? So if you don't have a vehicle, in Ferguson, how do you get to work? If you can't pay your fine because you don't have enough money, then you risk being stopped and harassed. And the city of Ferguson was actually funding their operations by fighting and feeding people. And, and then you have, I'm going to keep using this phraseology, this, these ecosystems of oppression that continue mm-hmm. to manifest themselves that create a, a powder keg experience after the killing of Mike Brown, right? And yeah. the killing of Mike Brown... And, and then not just the killing of Mike Brown for allegedly taking a cigar wrapper, right? Allegedly. He wasn't, like, tried. He wasn't 
convicted. Like this is an allegation, right? There was no, yeah. and I, I think what we don't do enough is to say that like, well, just because the police said that he did a thing doesn't mean that thing actually happened. You know, exactly. if, if we listen to the police report after George Floyd's public lynching, we would not have gotten the same image that we got when we actually exactly. saw the nine minutes and 29 seconds. And so it's this broken windows policing that we borrow from the UK mixed with this slave patrolling concept of a racial caste system that creates the circumstances that we see build up to Mike Brown in Ferguson. Then Mike Brown happened, then his body lay there on the ground and then nothing happens that causes these uprisings to happen. Right. And these uprisings occur because people were peacefully protesting and they were met with what? Militarized police forces who are receiving military grade equipment through 1033 and really other programs. And the 1033 program is a federal uh, program from the Department of Defense that gives military grade equipment and technology to local police departments in this kind of post 9-11 world that we've allowed everything to be a justification to further militarize police forces. And so they show and wasn't up. It, wasn't it expanded under Obama? Exactly, right? Uh, initiated under Bush and expanded under Obama. And so this kind of like rapid, literally machinery that was in war in Afghanistan are being deployed in communities in New York State, in New York City, in Ferguson, around the country. And that's the backdrop to the uprisings. And so it's when a you... bit of a tangent here, but I do have to ask you a question. I'm yeah. going to be annoying. It's my, my podcasting um, skills coming here. When you speak about the 1033 program and how and the ways in which you know the police is uh, policing are using military style equipment, when you see what happens on, I believe, January the 6th, was it with the insurrection? Mm-hmm. What comes to your mind? I just have to ask that. So I talk about this a lot and I'm totally game to answer that. I think the contrast that comes up is you have people who are fighting for their life, their ability to exist, and people who are in solidarity with them, uh, who mm-hmm. are peacefully protesting, who are met with the entire brutal force of the state, right? All the highest levels of state-sanctioned violence, including, you know, from the president of the United States, right? So that he can hold a Bible upside down and, like, take a photo op. And then you have a contrast, which... I actually am disturbed at the way that we refer to this as a quote-unquote big lie. I think that sanitizes it. It was a coup mm-hmm. attempt. Like we can't, mm-hmm. we, like we need to call a thing what it is. We need to be yep. clear with what our language is. It was a coup attempt, and the purpose of the coup was to maintain a racial caste system because this mm-hmm. idea that how dare black people ever get the ability to have any political power, we're not accepting that, is really what is at the crux of what January 6th was. So how do I feel about it? There's multiple things that I feel, but it's not a surprise. It was surprising to watch because, like, in your gut, you know it's happened. Like, you know it's going to happen. But it's like, damn, they really did this. They really just did that. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's still very difficult to find the words. But at mm. the same time, it's not a surprise because it's not just a new, it's the natural next direction. Like, where else do you go? from everything that's happened since Reagan and before. Like, where where else do we go from here? And I think it's easy for people to say that Trump is an aberration when he actually is just a natural manifestation of everything that's been going on in Mm -hmm. American politics. He is the thing that they wanted. um, it reminds me, sorry to cut you off, it reminds me of what Du Bois says when Du Bois says he he finds that fascism, particularly what took place in, in under Stalin and also Hitler, he goes, he goes, it wasn't 
something a diversion of the colonial tactics that that Britain used on Europe used in general, but rather it was just a natural continuation of those things. Yeah. Where else does it go from there? Exactly. And so our analysis has been really absent of really just critiquing the discourse and and which is why I kind of am happy to have you here because I think it allows us to begin to think about Ferguson in a different way, but also to the point of like the black radical movement and thought to see that like these ecosystems of oppression are Mm -hmm. not just like new because of like there was a, there's a a really, really, really great interview with Angela Davis from like 2017 who talks about, Mm -hmm. talks about um, both the history of the Black Panther Party and their synergies and connections back in the 60s with with Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Liberation mm-hmm. Movement um, and and the experiences. So as you say, you're right. These are not these these connections aren't new. But but she she contrasts Black Panther Party with Black Lives Matter and really has a lot of excitement from Black Lives Matter movement for a number of reasons. One of the things that she uplifts is the discourse of the Black Panther Party wasn't necessarily as intersectional as BLM is, right? They didn't necessarily center uh, black women. And, and I think that was a, that's a legitimate critique. But another critique was that it's in many respects rooted in a similar, I don't want to actually reduce it. I'm just going to use her words, right? She says that it was absolutely a brilliant move on the part of Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to patrol the neighborhood with guns and law books. In other words, police to police. At the mm-hmm. same time, this strategy, admittedly also inspired by the emergence of guerrilla str- struggles in Cuba, liberation armies in Southern Africa and the Middle East, and the successful resistance offered by the National Liberation Front in Vietnam, in retrospect, a reflected a failure to recognize, as Audre Lorde put it, that the master's tool will never dismantle the master's house. In mm-hmm. other words, the use of guns, even though primarily as symbols of resistance, conveyed the message that the police could be challenged effectively by relying on explicit policing strategies. That's starkly distinct from what Patrice Cullors and Lisa Garza and Opal Tometi did with BLM. And, you know, that notwithstanding, there's still, though, this synergy between, in the earliest days of BLM, this recognition between the need to demilitarize police as, a, as yeah. central to the struggle for liberation but also acknowledging and recognizing the relationship between Palestinian uh, liberation movements, particularly because, as, as you really, really perfectly put it, they were advising on how do you protect yourself from tear gra- gas and pepper spray and avoid the harm. And, 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 I, and I think, therefore, it's important for us to bring up what is currently happening in Sheikh Jarrah, in East Jerusalem, yeah. in Palestine, across. And I think if we're going to be true to the black radical movement, that we ought to be talking about the Palestinian issue. So we're, we're going to do that today. To put a little context, and I have a, a few questions for you, it's important for people to challenge the, the meta-narrative that is out there. There's this really great PR campaign that, that exists where uh, we're able to justify the dehumanization and, 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 and state-sanctioned execution and oppression of Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. The context of this is that in the beginning of Ramadan, which just ended yesterday, Israel blocked off access to Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third most holiest site for Muslims. And at the same time, you have Israeli settlers to the point of your settler colony narrative and really the connection between the U.S. 
these Israeli settlers, and I think it's important for us to use specific language because the media yeah. talks about evicting people, forcibly evicting, which isn't accurate because it, it, in order to be evicted, you actually have to own the thing that you're exactly. evicting the person from. So like, exactly. actually, they're not evicting them. They're not forcibly evicting them. They're forcibly stealing their homes. I mean, there's a video that's gone viral with this woman who's saying to Yaakov, Yaakov, you are stealing my house. And he's like, exactly. what are you going to do? If I don't do it, someone else is going to do it, right? So exactly. this is the context and, that this and exists. And that's never finished. No, it hasn't. It's, it's been going on since. And, and it's, it's, it's quite there in the fore right now. And as we, as we think about at the same time that Netanyahu is in a position where he is, as they say, in the political fight of his life, he's being indicted for allegations of criminality and corruption. Yeah. He has no longer the premiership because there is a, you know, an asking for another member of, of the Knesset to be able to form a new government. Netanyahu specifically needs settlers and especially the far right in order to maintain power. And it is somewhat convenient that there's a need to be in war in order to justify that. So that was a lot. But can you, can you really help do justice to both the Palestinian struggle and especially talk about the relationship that those who are about black liberation have to be engaged in the Palestinian liberation movement as well? Absolutely. Um, no, thank you. That was a lot, but that was much needed. So thank you. Thank you for that. I think, again, when you look at the technologies or, or the processes of settler colonialism, you find that they're the same everywhere. So you find you have people, we have to call what it is, and I think you, you've said it a few times now, we have to be very specific in our language. And this is nothing short of ethnic cleansing. I know it sounds very uh, harsh. Maybe some people might say I'm extreme in my wording, but I have no doubt this is ethnic cleansing because you have Gaza, which is basically an open air prison. Access is restricted. Movement is restricted. People who want to do, go two miles down the road are, are humiliated by checkpoints. That's an open air prison. I don't, I don't know another word for it. Then you have Sheikh Jarrah, which now, again, Israel is violating almost every international law in that it's saying, in that it's been told that these set settlements are illegal and they make the, the hope for two-state solution even more impossible. So what we're seeing right now today in, in Palestine is a continuation of Nakba. And for those who don't know, Nakba was in the end of 1940s, I believe 47 or 48, in which five, up to 400, 600 Palestinian villages were expelled uh, and were forcibly removed to make way for Israeli settlers. And that has just been a continuation of that. And we're seeing that today. And again, from the, again, you seldom find someone from black radical tradition who didn't speak on this. Again, you find Malcolm X said that even the historical claim that the Israelis make today for that land is not rooted in history or in religion. Um, I hope I did. I hope I did like a summary of what's no, happening. No, <laughs> no. I, I think you had a lot there, and, it, and it was, it's important, right? Because there's a lot of blowback that people get when they have these conversations. You know, Mark Lamont Hill uh, testified yeah. at the UN, a, a brilliant public intellectual, right, about the occupation. And you know, Mark is an amazing media commentator. He is yeah. a renowned professor and and intellect, public intellect in in his own right, and is no longer you know, uh, a guest on CNN because yeah. of his advocacy for Palestinian struggle. And not because anything he said was inaccurate, but because, you know, you can't even question whether or not that this should be acceptable that we have these realities. And so I, I think it's really essential for people to understand that when we're talking about 
living in occupied communities in black and brown communities in the U.S. And we're talking about militarized police forces. This is the experience that Palestinians have on their land. This is the experience that Palestinians have. When we talk about, as we do, and I live in Syracuse currently, and the interstate highway system in the U.S. was made by demolishing black homes so that white suburban communities could have economic opportunities, right? I live in Syracuse, which is the home of the Onondaga Nation, the Haudenosaunee, inaccurately referred to as the Iroquois Confederacy, the Mm -hmm. longest standing democracy in the Western Hemisphere for over a thousand years, they've exa- they've practiced their form of indigenous democracy without uh, without ceasing that. But this idea of dispossession from land is very much yeah. deeply connected to not just the Black liberation movement, but indigenous communities. And this is the same yes. type of repeated characteristics that exist in settler colonial countries, right? So the U.S. does it yep. and Australia, right, with, with, with the Aborigine yep. communities there, uh, South Africa, right? And so the reason why there are these natural connections across these communities, because it's the same experience. It's, it's the same experience, and we have a responsibility to speak up to it, but that responsibility comes with, with potential blowback that I'm totally okay it, with. It getting. comes with blowback, and I'm okay with that. I, I mean, I mean, you already know me, bro. I don't mince my words, and I don't care because I, I and I and I boldly claim and I stick by what I'm saying. I call Zionism white supremacy, a form of white supremacy, uh, and that's what and, and I because what what I the claim that you can forcibly uh, you can dehumanize people routinely, no blowback, and and actually you get support. I find quite abhorrent. And, I, and I, I speak to people, and I'm sorry, I know you're in the States, but the dismal response of the state officials has been really, ups- I mean, it's expected, but I couldn't, I just don't believe with all that we're witnessing on video. It's very akin, you know, you know when um, people say like, oh, but Hamas is firing rockets. And of course we condemn any, any use of, to be fair, I don't even, I, I'll be honest with you, I believe in the, Palestinians have a right to defense as well, to resistance. In an ideal world, of course, I don't, I don't, I think things should be around the table, diplomatically solved and, you know, without the need of any violence, of course. But again, when we find that the most, the Israel's defense is, has the best iron dome in the world, which can, you know, intercept most of the, anything that's been, been targeted in Israel versus, you know, the some of the the high some of the highest budgeting military uh, military budget in the world you know that can decimate whole cities within a matter of seconds i think then the the onus and responsibility is on israel not to be heavy-handed i mean you're targeting civilian targeting civilian buildings there's been reports of white phosphorus and anytime we want a, a un resolution of 73 declares that we can have investigations in certain places and this been, this has been vetoed time and time again by the states so we don't even kind of even investigate what's happening on. So when the, the allegations of war crimes are not investigated. And all that comes out from state officials is the, re, the kind of unwavering and unyielding support for Israel's actions. And I said to my, I said the other day, if you want to speak about values of a country, we don't look to constitutions because the constitution in the, in the states, even though it's beautifully written and has amendments and other places in Britain hasn't got a written constitution, but it's got some of it is written and, you know, it's beautiful on paper. But I always say to people, let's not look. If you want to know what a country stands for, don't look at its constitution. Look at its budget. And the budget of America tells you a lot. Because, I mean, I think it was Obama that authorized, I think, a $3 billion care package 
for actually uh, a military budget for Israel. When Israel's not in war with anybody, well, it's in war with one people and people can't even defend themselves. So I think we have to have take a hard look at ourselves and people in America and ask, is it justified that tax dollars, when they're, when they're arguing over, oh, what, which can, in, in a pandemic, we're arguing over, you know, a minimum wage, for example, you know, trying to settle on $11, $15, $25 is the, is the dream. You know, uh, settling over a coronavirus package, people are debating over it. Oh no, it's too much, it's too less. Mitch McConnell saying he's gonna, you know, do everything in, in his power to stop this going through. But then, you know, for the people in America, where people in America are suffering in this time, but the dollars which are used to kill innocent people, to, uh, to decimate whole buildings and whole cities is not even being questioned. I think it throws a lot of a moral dilemma for a lot of people. No, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. And in fact, I think that, um, I, I think it's important to uplift the fact that one, I'm totally okay with being critical of the government in this context. I, I literally went to Syracuse University <laughs> and studied Middle Eastern studies to tackle this issue. And I, mm-hmm. I will not say that I was the most popular student in my Middle Eastern studies classes, <laughs> uh, to be clear. And I'm totally okay with that. And, and I think even to go back to the black radical movement and, and public intellectuals like Angela Davis, you know, she, she echoes many of the things you said. And I just want to read again from that article, uh, that interview, in her own political history, as she says, Palestine has always occupied a pivotal place, precisely because of the similarities between Israel and the United States. Their foundational settler colonialism and their ethnic cleansing processes with respect to indigenous people, their systems of segregation, their use of legal systems to enact systemic oppression, and so forth. I often point, as she says, that my own consciousness of the predicament of Palestine dates back to my undergraduate years at Brandeis. Mm. Moreover, during my own incarceration, I received support from Palestinian political prisoners as well as from Israeli attorneys defending Palestinians. And it's important to understand that this synergy isn't just rhetorical. This is real, right? Like, to your point, like, we're, we're spending over $3 billion to justify an occupation, and the conversations that we're having are not about whether or not you know, we, we are we are creating a reality where we we have apartheid and, and to yes. the Jimmy Carter, right, a former president, right? Like who probably is the only president who's come up with some kind of peace deal between agreement, right? Like the Camp David Accords that he led, one can be critical of it, but I think he has an opinion that's a, yeah. perhaps a legitimate one, you know, mm-hmm. who says himself this is apartheid uh, and actually in many respects has been pushed out of of respect from from the 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 media and 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 former presidents while they were in office, largely because of his activism as an observer of those issues. And so, I don't I don't, I don't disagree with the notions of the fact that the disproportionality of yes. response is obtuse. Right. This even the yeah. narrative that um, the the theory behind the right to defend. Um, the right to defense is it means like you defend, not like instigate. And I think it's exactly. it's 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 the way that we've been able to not really have this conversation. And I think that it's incumbent upon people who are allies to the Black Liberation Movement, people who claim to be a part of the Black Radical Movement and claim to be and espouse themselves as Black Radical thinkers, that we ought to be speaking up more. And it's not to say that that's not happening, right? The Dream Defenders. 
which is a group of, of Black Lives Matter organizers based out of Florida, if I, if, if I remember accurately, yeah, they're from Florida, they, they have posted about this. And, you know, so th- there's, there's a number of black ra- people who are still involved in the black radical tradition. As I said, Mark Lamont Hill, Angela Davis, um, you know, and many, many, many others, uh, Cornell West, who still speak to these issues and, and, and tell us that we ought to be engaged in this discussion. But where do we go from here? Like what's, as, as we're calling for defunding and abolishing the police, what does that call look like on the international level? Because it's part of what what has been helpful in moving towards the liberation work in South Africa um, mm-hmm. was their day of, of boycott and divest, right? And Davis talks about the need to, to really be deeply rooted and involved in BDS work, yeah. boycott, divest, and sanction in the U.S., and that we, we ought to really be using those levers because these are crimes against humanity and they just can't stand. Exactly. Uh, so no, so what, is, what, what is the next step for us? No, absolutely. I, f- I just want to echo your call on, on BDS, to be honest. I think that's what we can do. And, and I think people are facing, I believe in some states it was outlawed, wasn't it? In some states. Uh, well, I mean, New York, New York Governor Cuomo tried to basically deny anyone of contracts with the, with the state if, if they participate or engage in what is legitimate First Amendment activity. So the ACLU of New York was very much against that. Um, I just want to big up my former employer. Um, <laughs> I love it. But yeah, there are states, and even the quote-unquote progressive state of New York um, was one of them. And in fact, <laughs> I was remiss in mentioning Mark Lamont Hill's own book is But, for, but Palestine, right? Which is like a yeah. reminder that like liberals and progressives and quote-unquote woke people you know, are, are all about the cause except Palestine. And if, you, if you're not for black liberation for all black people and your, your theory of black liberation means black men or black women or black heterosexual mm-hmm. people, then you're not talking about black liberation. You're talking about black liberation for some. If you're, if you're exactly. talking about liberation and it doesn't include an interrogation of what's happening in Palestine, then you're not actually talking really fully about radical, legitimate and Exactly. And I want to speak to that. Mm-hmm. I want to speak to that because... People have saw some unhelpful memes on social media that, that say, oh, but you lot spoke for George Floyd or you lot spoke for BLM, but you're being quiet for what's happening in Palestine. And you find that there's so many of these reactionaries on both sides. And then you get black people who come out and say, but I don't support these people because they're anti-black. I don't support these people because, you know, they, they're racist and, you know, they haven't supported us. And I have to remind people, the black radical tradition doesn't, is not in solidarity with people because of some kind of quid pro quo that, yeah. you know, some market exchange of ideas and solidarity that, oh, if you support me, I support you. No, we are in solidarity with people because on principle, because we recognize the suffering that we've had to endure and recognize it in elsewhere. And I want to say this quite boldly, even if every single, listen, this is not the case, but even if every single Palestinian was anti-Black, I'll still, be, I'll still support them and, and, and be in solidarity with them. And I think it's very important because we can't get, I mean, we're radicals, not reactionaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's very important to say, we're radicals and not reactionaries. Reactionaries saying, oh, you didn't support me, therefore I'm not going to, who the hell cares? Yeah, and again, we use the word radical because... 
we have gone so radically askew from what should be normally accepted that in order to yeah. get us to a pace that should be acceptable, we have to go radical. <laughs> that's just, exactly. that's, that's exactly. for people who are afraid of the word radical. I'm unapologetic about it, but it's it's in that context. In the last, no, thank you for raising that because in the UK, that term is so demonized because of the over policing and scrutinization of of Muslims in the UK. People are afraid to use the word radical. And I said, you know, that's in my Twitter bio, on Instagram bio, a black radical, <laughs> loud and proud. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, a part of the, the post 9-11 terrorism, yeah. war, war and terror discourse that like even seeps into this idea of radicalism, right? Like this utilization of this phraseology of like, I, I was, as I'm a news person, I watched the news mm-hmm. a lot um, to my own detriment perhaps, but I just enjoyed the discourse sometimes and it was interesting because i'm listening to people who are trying to perpetuate themselves as being fair and balanced when they're not but (laughs) using this idea of like well you know there's there's violence from the settlers but there's radicalization that's happening from the palestinians without interrogating that idea of like all right if we assume that they're becoming radicalized and if we assume that radicalization is a bad thing just going off of your idea why are they quote unquote being radicalized perhaps because in a global pandemic their homes are being demolished and they're being forced out of them, perhaps because water supply has been cut off and they're living in an open air prison, perhaps because, you know, while, while some people are able to get vaccinations, they're not able to get vaccinations, exactly. perhaps because they don't have any prospects for a future beyond continued systematic decades and generations of dispossession and dehumanization and multiple ecosystems of oppression. I mean, what else do you what, what, what do you have left? And I think that because we don't humanize them, um, it's easy for yep. us to justify their plight and then say that they're the reason that 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 they're getting this violence inflicted upon them. And I think it's perverse, to be frank. I think it's I think it's crude, disgusting, and perverse that we have allowed ourselves to do that. In the last few moments that we have, just want to get a sense of like what what's what's the latest that you're working on? What where is the Malcolm effect going? Um, yeah. how, how do you plan to continue this conversation and and what, 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 can, what can people do moving forward? I would say join an organization. There's several, there's several around the world um, that you find. I think it's very important in times like this that we do activism and also political education and studying in community with others. I think it's very important um, for myself. So as you asked about the Malcolm Effect, I will be launching the Malcolm Effect Collective, which hey. is... Um, which is, and yeah, so you got the exclusive, (laughs) which is uh, coming very soon to basically connect activists from around the world because and provide political education from around the world. So I want to provide political education in several different languages. And I also want to be on point when we're talking about our analysis. So if I'm able to connect people from, let's say, Denmark, from Sweden, from the Francophone countries, which I don't really know much about because I have a language barrier and also what's happening on the continent and also in North America and South America, all in one hub, we, when we have analysis, we can say, ah, it's the same thing that happened in England happened in South America like this, or same thing happened in America, same thing happened in, in Finland like this. So again, it allows us to have a collective and more important, not more importantly, but also as well, sometimes you can be studying and, and it, just, it can be quite depressing sometimes. And it can be quite sad when you, when you look into the world and see all that's happening, all the oppression and, and suffering. But being in community with others does kind of offer hope and think, you know what, there's at least a collective of people who are radical and who want to radically see the world anew. So that's the kind of vision for it, um, asking for the prayers and hopefully it does, uh, it's successful in, in, in what, I'm, what I'm trying to achieve. 
No, I think that's excellent because as as you say that, I'm thinking about what you know. We we spoke about Palestinian you know solidarity, yes. but also like what's happening in Colombia, right? Is yes. quite similar. What's happening in Brazil is quite similar. Yep. And, and and again, in these settler colonial realities, you see this re- repetitious type of blueprint that's being replicated. And so this this need for um, collective action is. And I say oftentimes in, in the work that I do that um, we, it is never going to be a politician who's going to save us. We only have gotten anything yep. we've ever gotten through collective action. And it's going to yep. take collective action to shift things. And this is very much within the black radical tradition to tr- internationalize the struggle and to create a pan-Africanist vision that is in solidarity yep. with other communities. And I espouse and, and aspire to be a part of that is kind of what, Afro Futures looks to do, and I'm happy that mm-hmm. you are the first transnational conversation uh, that we're having, <laughs> both as a person who is British of Gambian descent, but currently lives in Egypt. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to be here and sharing your brilliance with Absolute us. Honor and privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm totally looking forward to being a part of the collective. So please don't forget me. Of course. <laughs> you have been listening to Yusuf Abdul Qadir of Afro Futures. I'm on the call here with Mamadou Tal of The Malcolm Effect, and we have just had an amazing conversation on Afro Futures. Please, please, please look up The Malcolm Effect uh, wherever you get your podcast and stay tuned to the number of conversations that we're going to keep having here. Afro Futures is produced by WAER Public Radio with producers Joe Lee and Kevin Kloss.